and it's Mark's Gospel, as Phil said, um, chapter 11 and reading from verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Australians really don't know how to handle royalty anymore, I don't think. Uh, we have royal visits here from time to time, but we're really not sure what to do when they come. Uh, we had uh, Prince Harry, uh, Prince William here with his wife and children, and we had Harry here not too long before that, and, and now we even actually have our own royalty here in Australia. We have Princess Mary, who will one day be the Queen of Denmark. But we're really not sure what to do with royalty. There was a controversy a few years ago, some of you may remember it, when Paul Keating was the Prime Minister, uh, the Queen was visiting Australia and Paul Keating placed his arm around the Queen as he was introducing her to some guests and apparently that's a big no-no. 
Uh, this actually made front page news in the UK that someone had actually touched the Queen. Uh, the poor Prime Minister felt very embarrassed about what had happened. Now, when we come to Mark chapter 11, it's a crucial turning point in Mark's gospel and a crucial turning point in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem for the last time. This will be the culmination of his life and his work. He has arrived in Jerusalem, the city of the king. But as we see from Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, people aren't really sure what to do with royalty here either. Uh, He meets a very mixed response. It starts out okay at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, Jesus uh, reaches the outskirts of Jerusalem and he gets his disciples to do a few things there to prepare for his entry into Jerusalem. They are to go ahead and find this small donkey, a young donkey that's going to be tied up and then they are to bring it to him because he plans to ride into town on this donkey. Seems like a very strange request that Jesus, a full-grown man, is actually going to ride not just a donkey but he's going to ride a baby donkey. But it's all to do with this quote from Zechariah. Well, this is what the this is what the passage says in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is doing what Zechariah said would happen. The king is coming. He's coming to deliver salvation. The king is arriving. And the king is riding on a donkey, humble. This is the king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come to take the throne. I always think it's amusing when the royal family visit Australia is that they seem to get taken on this extraordinary collection of things that they have to see and do. They obviously have all of the official dinners, the government house and Yarralumla, all of that sort of stuff. But then they'll take the coin to visit the Mars Bar factory. I mean, does she really have some special interest in Mars Bars? Well, for Jesus, the first stop is the temple. And we're told it's, it's a funny thing, but he arrives at Jerusalem, first of all, late in the afternoon, so they decide not to do anything that day. He heads back out to Bethany and they come back the following day in, into the temple. And when they get to the temple court, they find that the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, is being used for a completely different purpose for the one for which it was intended. Uh, This is what the temple looked like back in Jesus' day. This is what he would have arrived at. And this outer court here on this side was known as the court of the Gentiles. And then there's the first court that you come into as you walk into the main entrance. And this was the court for Israelite women. And then there was another area where only Israelite men were allowed to enter in. But this Gentiles court, the court on the side had become a market. People had lost interest in the idea that the Gentiles could come there to worship the God of Israel and instead they'd turned it into a marketplace. There were stalls set up there, money changers there. But God wanted his people, Israel, to be a light to the Gentiles. That's what he'd promised them that they would be. He'd promised them that he was going to draw all nations to himself. So having a court for the Gentiles should have been an important thing. It should have been a a high priority for them. 
but they seemed to be completely oblivious to what it was that God was at work doing. The Gentiles had been squeezed out to make a place for stalls and for money changes. So Jesus takes the appropriate action when he arrives there. He overturns the tables of the money changers and he kicks out the stall holders. And you can imagine the commotion that must have happened when Jesus came in and did this. But Jesus backs up his actions by quoting scripture. He actually quotes two verses, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah, where God says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And then he quotes from Jeremiah where it says, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And then look at what happens next. Verse number 18 of chapter 11. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They fear Jesus. They fear that the crowd are going to side with him and not with them. They fear that their position and their authority is going to be undermined if Jesus keeps going. They fear that they're going to be left out in the cold. I mean, they decided back in chapter 3 that they were going to kill him, but now there seems to be a greater urgency. He has arrived in Jerusalem, the seat of their authority, and causing problems there. Now, what dominates these two chapters of Mark's Gospel is that everyone wants to question Jesus' authority. We have three incidents in this passage, in these two chapters, three times when Jesus is questioned about the authority that he has to do the things that he's doing, to overturn these tables and to say the things that he's saying. First incident, chapter 11 and verse number 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Well, Jesus says he'll answer their question if they'll just answer one question from him. And the question's a great one. Again, another question about authority. Verse number 29, you'll see it there. And Jesus replied... I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Here's the question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And the Pharisees know that they can't answer this question. Because if it's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? And if it's from men, if John just made it all up by himself... Well, then the people are going to be very, very angry with the religious leaders because they believe that John was a prophet. They believe that he was sent by God. They know that they can't answer this question. If they do, they will either embarrass themselves or the crowd will be turning against them. So what do they say? They say they don't know. Well, if they figured out the answer to that question, they'd have a better understanding of who Jesus was. But it seems as though the Pharisees might have actually learned from this experience because turn over to chapter 12 and find verse 13. They actually come to Jesus and they come with what is really a similar question. It's one of those questions where you're going to be in trouble whichever way you answer it. 
And this is what the question is. Verse number 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Did you see the question in there? In amongst all of that sucking up and the cynicism? It's a simple question. Taxation. Should we be giving money to the Romans? Now again, if Jesus says, yes, you should definitely pay your taxes, well, he's going to lose the support of the crowd because they're looking for a king who's going to boot the Romans out. They don't want to be living under this oppression from the Romans. But if he says, no, don't pay your taxes, well, there's going to be a few Roman authorities hanging around who hear that and say, hang on, buddy, we need you to come with us. That would sound like rebellion. But what does Jesus do? Well, he gives the perfect answer. And you see it there, verse number 15, chapter 12. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and look at it, and let me look at it. They brought him a coin and he asked them, whose portrait is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. See, the question itself, the question that they were asking is where the problem is. They're confusing kingdoms here. They're confusing God's kingdom with earthly kingdoms. They're confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Caesar. And it's assuming that God's currency is the same currency as the one that Caesar uses. Jesus has no difficulty at all in saying, earthly kingdoms, give them the earthly currency. I mean, after all, the money's got Caesar's face on it. It must belong to him. But where to honour God by giving God what he is due? And it's not just a few coins. See, God doesn't run a taxation system. Where to honour God with all our heart and with all our soul, and with all our mind, and with all our strength. Jesus says that in these two chapters. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and soul, and mind, and strength. That's the honour that's due to God. Not a percentage of your income. Not some small taxation system. God wants all of you. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, the third question comes from the Sadducees. Now, we actually don't know terribly much about this group other than the few things that we read in the pages of the New Testament. They're a small group within the Jewish community and all we do know about them is that they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they thought they've got this perfect question to ask Jesus. Now, settle in because it's actually a long question. Let me read it for you. Chapter 12, verse 18. You can follow along if you like. Then the Sadducees said... Uh, Sorry, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have the children for his brother. 
Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving children. The second one married the widow and he also died, leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. And in fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. Very unfortunate family, isn't it? I mean, they've had a really bad run here. But at the resurrection, the Sadducees say, whose wife will she be since there were seven who were married to her? That's the kind of question you'd get from your year three scripture class. Can, can God, if God can do anything, then can God make a rock that's so heavy that he can't even lift it? I mean, it's one of those stupid questions, isn't it? And Jesus gives them the kind of answer that this question deserves. He actually says, you really don't have a clue about God or about the resurrection, do you? And then he quotes them a verse from Exodus. And he quotes God speaking to Moses because it was Moses who's given this law. And it's God speaking to Moses. And God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, God's talking hundreds of years after all three men died, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is. But did you notice the tense that he uses there? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These men are still around, and you don't seem to see that from your very own scriptures where God speaks to Moses. Now, in the midst of all of these questions, there's a parable that kind of spells out exactly what it is that's happening, what's going on in these chapters. You'll see it there at the beginning of chapter 12. It's called the parable of the tenants. Let me quickly run you through the parable. God, who is the master in this parable, entrusts the vineyard to some tenants who are the religious leaders of the people of Israel. Uh, When the vineyard should have been producing fruit, he sent a messenger to collect what was owing to him for renting out this farm to the tenants. And what did the tenants do to the messenger? They beat him. So the master sends another messenger And they also treat him shamefully. And in the parable, we're told that the master finally sent his son saying, they'll respect him, but they don't. They kill him. Now, the Pharisees understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. God had sent the prophets to call Israel back, to tell them to repent, to stop going the direction that they're going. But the leaders of the people refused to listen to the prophets. And the parable sums up perfectly their rejection of Jesus and his authority, doesn't it? And look at verse 12. As soon as he's finished telling this parable, it says, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he'd spoken the parable against them. Oh, duh. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They refuse to accept that Jesus is king. They just see him as a threat to their own authority and power. Tony Blair tells a story about going to an international conference in Europe just before becoming the uh, Prime Minister of England. And a lady came up to him at the conference and said, "Um, could you tell me who you are and where you're from? And he said, my name's Tony Blair and I'm the leader of the Labor Party in Britain. And Blair said to the lady, and you are? And the lady replied, Beatrice, and I'm from the Netherlands. And Blair said, Beatrice who? And she said, just Beatrice. 
And Blair said, and what do you do, Beatrice? And she said, I'm the queen. Now, it's understandable that you wouldn't recognise, I gather that this photo was actually taken at that conference. It's understandable that you might not recognise the queen of the Netherlands. I certainly wouldn't have been able to pick her out in a police lineup, and, and I probably wouldn't have known her name either. But even so, Tony Blair says that that was probably the most embarrassing experience in his entire life. But what we see in these religious leaders is not just a failure to recognise who Jesus is, this is a blatant refusal to accept Jesus as king. It's a refusal to accept his authority. Jesus is the king. There is no denying it. He is the one to whom God has given all authority. That's what you see all the way through Mark's gospel. You see it when Jesus fulfills those promises from the pages of the Old Testament. You see it in the miracles that Jesus performs. You see it in the things that Jesus teaches and everyone is amazed by his authority. You see it in the way that he handles the Pharisees. But the Pharisees and the religious leaders refuse to acknowledge him as king. See, to do so would mean relinquishing their own authority. To do so would be submitting to Jesus' authority. In a strange way, I still think people respond pretty much the same way to Jesus today. They reject Jesus not because they don't like him or the things that he says, they reject him because they don't want to have to submit to his authority. See, there's plenty of people who will acknowledge that Jesus lived, they will acknowledge that he was a wonderful teacher and said some great things, but they reject his authority, especially when it comes to how they ought to live their lives. The mantra today in our society is the mantra that's found in that poem, Invictus, that says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. People like that idea, don't they? Better no one. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But that's not the words for a person who acknowledges Jesus as king. This is what the follower of Jesus says. Jesus is the master of my fate. Jesus is the captain of my soul. So Jesus isn't simply your king on Sunday. He's the king in the whole of your life. He's the king of your work life, the king of your social life, the king of your family life, the king of your financial life, the king of your relationships, the king of your sexuality. Jesus didn't come to be a personal advisor and support person to help you in your decision-making process. He came to be the king of those decisions. I mean, think about the decisions that you have facing you in your life at the moment. Decisions about the future, decisions about family, decisions about work, financial decisions, career decisions, retirement decisions. How is the kingship of Jesus shaping and influencing those decisions? If, he, if you say that he is your king, then how is he the king of those choices and decisions that you make? Because if Jesus is your king, his kingship should have a profound impact on those choices. Ours is not the mantra of Invictus. 
Ours is the mantra of the kingship of Jesus in our lives. Jesus is the master of my fate. Jesus is the captain of my soul.